Like when did biking become too easy for you? <laughs> Where then you started to layer on all these things. And I, you know, I mean that half sarcastically, but like when you think about racing and like, why do you do these XLs that have all of these extra layers on top of it? That's a good question. Um, I think one of the reasons in, uh, I like this long format of racing in all honesty, I am terrified of the shorter races, mm. especially like the cross country style mountain bike racing, short track. That stuff to me is the most difficult thing that I can imagine doing. Um, I haven't spent much time doing that myself, so it's it feels very foreign to me mm. and it's one of the most incredibly painful things I can do on a bike. That is the voice of Taylor Ledeen, this year's overall winner of the Unbound Gravel XL Race, a 350-mile sufferfest through the Flint Hills of Kansas. Formerly known as Dirty Kansas or DK, the race challenged Taylor to the bitter end through nearly 24 hours of racing. We talk at great length about the race, the preparation and physical and mental side of ultra bike racing, and Taylor opens up about his battles on and off the bike with depression and the importance of family and close support of his wife and other loved ones to bring him back into the light. So if you're ready for the show, crank it up and let's go. Welcome to the Athlinks Podcast. I am your host, Troy Bousseau, coming to you from the sunny hills of Colorado's Front Range. It is uh, June 17th, 2021, and this is episode 45. How you doing, Taylor? Good, man. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. We have got Taylor. Is it Ladine or that's about the only Ledeen, way? Ledine, yeah. Ledeen, yeah. yeah. Cool. Hot off the, your, uh, your victory at the Unbound Gravel XL. <laughs> formerly known as Dirty Kanza. Yeah, uh, yeah. Are we allowed to say Dirty Kanza at all? Or has that name just been completely swept swept away? I, I think it's been totally swept away, <laughs> okay. but I had to catch myself in the weeks leading up to it and at the event. I would say DK and then correct yeah. myself. And I heard probably 100 people do the exact same thing. Yeah, it, it, yeah. That first year will have its transition. For sure. Yeah, indeed. Well, congratulations. That's a huge, huge victory. That's a big race. And so the XL which is how many miles is that? Uh, just a little bit over 350 was this year. Man, how many flats did you have? Uh, um, I had two punctures, one I didn't know about mm. right at the start. Nice. Um, <laughs> and then one in the middle of the night, but luckily I brought a spare tire with me. Okay. And I actually went, I changed the spare tire. I went for the spare tire. Some, I don't, it's hard to know what time, right? You just, everything kind of morphs into one, one big ride. So yeah. it was probably after midnight sometime, sometime that I swapped the front tire. So when, when you're, so the, the, you can describe it certainly better than I have. So full disclosure, the, um, uh, unbound now is owned by lifetime fitness, uh, lifetime mm -hmm. fitness, my former employer. Um, and so, uh, the, it, Unbound or DK is famous for the Flint Hills of Kansas. You're like these, you know, very sharp shards of, of gravel that you're riding on. I'm assuming most days you're running tubeless. Did you run tubeless for this or do you just start the race with tubes? Just knowing you Ab have to swap them. No, absolutely tubeless. Okay. Um, I would, I've talked to some people that did like the original when it was, formerly known as DK way back in the day. Okay. And they were telling me that they would bring at the time between seven and eight tubes wow. because 
tubeless wasn't really around at that yeah. time. It wasn't as common. And so, yeah, tubeless is the only way to go out there. People yeah. that run, tu- I, I can't imagine anybody on the start of any of the races running tubes. Um, yeah. I know and then chemo did it. Uh, I think a couple of years, do you know chemo Seymour? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he did it, and I think he had some. I mean, it was an ungodly amount. It was like six or seven flats where he he ended up running out of tubes. But he yeah. he started tubeless, and I think he like blew a sidewall on one of his tires or something. But yeah, it's crazy because the the tubeless technology is improving so much, and with stands now who offer two two types of sealant, like a standard sealant and a race sealant. Yeah as well as their dart tool, which is a plug system. Mm. What's really cool about the stands plug system is it interacts really quickly with the sealant itself. Okay. So bringing a, a dart tool or any type of plug system with you is absolutely crucial. And then having spare plugs as well. And you always want to make sure you have that handy and ready to go. You don't want to have it in a backpack where you have to dig ground. You want it either on your person, um, attach the bike where you can quick, quickly get at it. So that, that's interesting. So is that, that, that kind of like uh looks like a little piece of rawhide licorice basically? Yeah. It's a little different than the, we call them bacon strips. Okay. <laughs> uh, these, the darts are a bit different. They're almost this, they almost like look, look like a textured paper. Mm. Um, and like I said, they're meant to interact directly with the stand sealant. So these i've had some luck plugging even sidewall cuts with darts before wow um and then obviously any puncture in the tread is super quick to act uh yeah it's one of those things where plugs plugs and tire technology are improving yeah that's good to know i actually just got a brand new uh bike i got an exceed uh canyon exceed hardtail and my first real ride out with it it's got um maxis icons on it and i had a sidewall Mm -hmm. fail very first yep. ride. So and it's just, it was like a centimeter slit just above the rim. But so I've got a warranty. I have to send it back and all this stuff. And, and, um, yeah, a dart would have been helpful that day. I'm sure. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Yep. Out there, it's all about tire selection. Um, and having a plan for not if things go wrong, regardless if it's tire related, body related or other mechanicals, it's, when they will go wrong because when you're, I don't care if you're doing the hundred, 200 or XL, yeah. you're out there for a long, long, long time. And long there's time. just more time for things to go wrong. What were you, you were about 28 hours, I think. Uh, just under 23, 23 Apo- apologies. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. So how do you, that, you know, what you get to a point in bike racing where it, it's it, same with ultra running or whatever it is where it stops becoming just about the physical. And then you start layering on, as you just said, you've got the mental aspects, you've got the, the, um, mechanical aspects, you have nutrition, you know, you're, you're layering on all of these things. Like, where does that, um, like when did biking become too easy for you <laughs> where then you started to layer on all of these things? And I, you know, I mean that half sarcastically, but like when you think about racing and like, why do you do these XLs that have all of these extra layers on top of it? That's a good question. Um, I think one of the reasons in, uh, I like this long format of racing in all honesty I am terrified of the shorter races, Mm. especially like the cross country style mountain bike racing, short track, that stuff to me is the most difficult thing that I can imagine doing. Um, 
I haven't spent much time doing that myself. So it's, it feels very foreign to me mm. and it's one of the most incredibly painful things I can do on a bike. It's just a, the training is, yeah. So even something like the 200 at unbound, the pace is so much higher. Uh, I would like to go back and do the 200 at some point. Mm. Um, but right now my, the thing I love about cycling is that adventure aspect of it. You have, I mean, this is not to say that any other bike race doesn't require a ton of logistics, like the 200 and everything. Uh, but the difference between the XL and the 200 is the XL is fully self-supported. Yeah. Whereas the 200, there are a few pit stops where you can have a support crew there. Okay. And I'm not saying one is easier than the other because the speed that those guys and girls are doing in the 200 is absolutely mind blowing yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> like when you're out on those roads and you, you figure the average speed that they're going, it's just, it really is insane. Wow. Um, and just a testament to everybody's bike handling skills, their fitness, the homework that they've done leading up to that event. But for me, I think that the, I really enjoy the logistical side of mm. things and the planning and kind of doing your best to create your own luck in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have always been really fascinated about how mental it is as well. And I will admit at the start of any of these long races, I'm terrified. I think like, this is going to be impossible. Like, how am I supposed to ride 350 some miles? I, it seems so incredibly daunting. Yeah but you create these little checklists and you get to the first town and then you check that box and you get to the next town. And I don't keep track of time. I don't keep track of mileage. I don't look at any of that stuff mm. during these things. Cause to me, like I said, it just feels overly daunting if I do that. Wow. So let's go back to that, uh, that sort of fear. So let me see if I get this right, because in, in my equation, when I was doing triathlons, I would, I would literally, and I'm not, I don't normally have any kind of anxiety, on my swim days, especially interval days, I would literally have anxiety walking up to the gym, knowing how bad it was just going to hurt. Is that what you mean by like doing the smaller, shorter cross country types of races where you're just putting yourself at that level of physical distress is, is daunting to you? Yeah. Yes and no. I, the cross country stuff now is so it's such tight racing from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're fighting for, for position basically from the gun yeah. until you cross the line. And I will admit that's just relatively foreign to me, especially yeah. lately. So it, it seems because in these, in these long races, like 24 hour mountain bike racing or unbound XL, things don't happen all that quickly relative to shorter style races. So it's just a, it's, I don't think it's, comfortable to me essentially yeah. it's not necessarily anxiety driven there definitely is some anxiety there but it's more about just yeah i'm not yeah. comfortable with it yeah no that makes perfect sense i you know i'll do cyclocross workouts and i am by no means i mean especially living in boulder like the people that i'm training with are freaking you know they're superheroes and so the, yeah every once in a while you know like if we do four or five laps and we'll stop each lap you know you you like I'll try to jump out with some of the leaders and in last about 30 seconds and just the <laughs> feeling that that puts myself in versus like, okay, you know, staying toward the you know, the back of the pack and slowly starting to try to pick people off. It's a completely different mindset of how to race that way. Yep. So I, you know, in a, in a very layman's way, I understand, I think where you're, where you're coming yeah. from with that. Yeah. 
What is so. the um, so describe uh, you know because you you certainly seem to have a type in your <laughs> in your races. So I look you know twenty four hours of the old pueblo down in Tucson, Arizona, you know, DK or Unbound, you know dry kind of rocky conditions. Is that what you obviously you live? Well, you I don't know if we've even talked about it on the recording. You live in Phoenix, Arizona just behind yep. South Mountain. So is that what you prefer are the kind of drier desert types of routes? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, warm, dry, dusty, loose. Yeah. Um, if it's wet and rainy, it's very uncomfortable to me. I did a 24-hour <laughs> 20, race back in twenty October of 2018 in Scotland, the 24-hour world championships. Nice. And it rained from start to finish. And I had a feeling it was going to be like that before we even made the trip. So for a month or two, I just every day was like, you be ready for wet and cold conditions. And sure yeah. enough, it was that and more. <laughs> Does it change the riding style for those listening who, you know, maybe aren't familiar with mountain biking to the same level? Like what, how does it change riding, uh, like your technique and, you know, just the physicality of it, take the phys take, take the weather elements out of it in terms of the effects on the body, but just from a purely mechanical bike, um, standpoint, how does a wet condition, Rudy condition, let's say in the, you know, Oregon or Scotland, you know, tree roots and things like that versus loose desert, dry rock. Sure. Yeah. I, I noticed that the upper body fatigue on like wet roots is through the roof mm. just because I think I don't do it enough to be comfortable with it. So I'm always really tight on the bike and I'm squeezing the bike too tightly. I'm not flowing with the bike as easily as I would with somewhere like in dry conditions in the desert here. So for me, it's just far more exhausting, honestly, yeah. both physically and mentally. And you're trying to preserve your equipment more. So you're maybe taking less risks, but you're feeling more fatigued by taking less risks. So mentally it doesn't add up. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of questioning what you're doing out there, but there's a rhyme and reason for it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, so let's describe this, the unbound. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a cool, it's in Emporia, Kansas, super small town. I mean, it's literally, I think kept Emporia sort of on the map or, or alive, uh, over the years. What yep. is, um, so just, just kind of, let's walk through race day a little bit and, um, kind of your preparation going in. How did you feel going in? How many people were you up against all of those things? Yeah. Um, Cause you guys start before the race actually starts, right? The XL, they send you guys off like a few hours before. Uh, we start on Friday at 3 PM, okay. whereas the 100s and the 200s start early Saturday morning. Okay. So we start well in the heat of the day on Friday. Uh, I don't really, you know, I don't really know why they do that. My assumption is that they do it because there's a 36 hour cutoff time. So that I think that that matches the cutoff time for the 200. Got it. It, so it spreads it out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Emporia, Kansas, the first time my wife and I ever went there for, was for the 200 back in 2018 okay. and never been to Kansas in my life. All of our friends and family are like, why are you guys going to Kansas? <laughs> <laughs> and we just said, well, there's this big bike race there. We want to go check it out. And we hopped in the van, made the trip over and we instantly fell in love with Kansas. Mm. Um, just the rolling Hills going into Emporia basically after we left Wichita driving in in 2018, we're like, man, this is beautiful. It's just a, it's the, the views we've never been able to see before. Mm. And 
since 2018, even when we drove there, we've been staying with an amazing family right in town, uh, Chris and Shannon Reck, who have opened their house up to us with open arms. And we've created a really good relationship with them. And we just really enjoy spending time there. So yeah, um, so we did the same thing this year in, in 21, but this year we flew, which was nice. We don't have to make that drive all the way yeah. to Phoenix. And my wife and Kenny Wen um, from Stan's No Tubes came along for the trip and we stayed at Chris and Chan's house again. And it's just this town that has this atmosphere, especially surrounding the race. You can just feel it when you get off the interstate and into town. Nearly every car or truck has a bike on it. Mm. People are commuting through town. It's just this, it's a special feel for sure. And everybody welcomes the cyclists. Like there's towns on these small business shops that say, welcome unbound ride riders. Yeah. As you're pre-riding, you get to see these little houses that have the same signs out in the middle of nowhere. Um, During the race, you'll come across farmers who are ringing bells and handing out bottles of water or Coca-Cola. Like it's just, they welcome cyclists, which is really cool to see. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this year's focus, I had just that, no focus. (laughs) (laughs) I had put zero pressure on myself, which was my, what I wanted what I wanted to do. I just wanted to go there and have fun before, during, and after with Mary and Kenny and the rec family and not necessarily think about the event while we were there. Go enjoy coffee, go enjoy food, which we definitely did. We ate at this burger joint every night there because I'm usually after trying to cram as many calories for about five days leading in. Okay. So yeah, it was very, very relaxed mm. from the start of arriving in town. It was just more about you're going to go do this big bike ride and hopefully things go well, but if they don't, you had a great trip, right? Like yeah. the trip, if the trip is the, the, the bike rides, the bonus, the trip is the focus essentially. When you, when you go against uh, 350 miles and, and that I would assume at that distance, you're sort of approaching it like you're racing you're racing against the course before you're racing against people in a way, meaning there's so 100%. many, there's so many ways that your day is just not going to end well versus I'm going to try to beat, you know, Steve. Right. So like, is yep. that kind of your mentality going in is like finish first, win second kind of thing? Yeah. I never even thought about winning, honestly. Okay. Uh, finishing is the, was the number one goal. So I brought enough food, spare supplies with me, and the chance that I would even miss the cutoff time. Mm, so I was planning to be out there. If, if things didn't go my way and I had some major mechanicals or the body just didn't respond, I was planning on being out there as long as it took me to finish. Okay. Um, so I started with over 8,000 calories packed on the bike. So what does that look like? What does 8,000 calories look like? What is that? It's interesting. So I did a, I use a lot of liquid nutrition in the form of infinite. Okay. Um, they're able to do a custom blend, which is really cool. So I've been using their products for four plus years now. So I've really been able to dial in like the custom blend that I use. Uh, and I used a really, really concentrated blend in the backpack that I was wearing. Okay. So surviving off of that out there was pretty crucial for me. Liquid nutrition especially when it's hot, which it was just works well with my stomach. I'm not saying it's going to work well with everybody, but for me personally, it does. Okay. So the backpack alone had 
a thousand or just over a thousand calories in it for 50 ounces. Okay. Um, and then plenty of solid food on the, on the bike. And I've learned from 24 hour mountain bike racing that you want to bring anything and everything that may sound good because you just don't know, right? Like in training, one thing can sound really good and appetizing. Whereas on race day, it's the last thing you want to touch. How much like real food versus bars and things like that do you bring? Like, give us a, like, what did, what did you pack? What tasted good? What didn't you, what didn't taste good? So I brought, obviously infinite was the main source of calories. Um, I brought a ton of like beef sticks, Mm. high in salt, fat and protein. So a good way to curb your hunger when you're out there, but also get in salt. Um, gluten-free Oreos, double stuffed gluten-free Oreos, like my go-to thing, (laughs) obviously not the best thing for you. Um, what else did I have? Milky Way and Heath bars. Okay. Always are good to me. Like a Heath bar is always one of my favorite things. Nice. Uh, and then honestly, I survived a lot and this sounds horrible on soda. Yeah. Yeah. Like at the gas stations, I was downing because it's self-supported and you're rolling through these, these really small towns. My plan going in was try to be as quick and efficient while I was there. And soda was something that I could hold down and it didn't mess up my stomach and it just tasted good. It was a quick hit of energy and I could be on my way. And Strawberry milk, which I know sounds crazy. <laughs> oh, actual dairy milk? Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. I, I I do that on my training rides a lot here, even in the heat. Yeah. I don't know what it is about strawberry milk. Huh. I'll go in and grab one, and it tastes like a milkshake to me. Yeah, for sure. So that's, that's one of my favorite things. Yeah, a lot of it is just, you know... the. The, I've certainly never done the the 23 hour type of adventure, but you know I've done some longer runs and certainly run through the desert a lot. And it's amazing, kind of as you said, like sometimes you just cannot put another grain of sugar in your mouth, and all you want is salt. And then, and conversely, you know, like you can't have any more salt, and all you need is something sweet. And it's it's almost like that. Uh, Newman in uh, Jurassic Park, where you know he's like down in a bunch of candy, and he's like I yeah. need some salty <laughs> to offset it, you know. Yeah. It's, it definitely takes a lot of practice, right? Like I personally think that training your gut is just, just as crucial as getting the time in the saddle. Like if your gut's not used to it, it's not going to go well. How often are you training anywhere near that distance? Like what does a long training day look like for you when you're preparing for this, you know, 24 hour race? Yeah. People assume that I ride way more than I do, mm. which I, it makes sense, right? Like if you see people doing 20 plus hour races, you probably assume they are always riding 20 plus hours a week. Couldn't be further from the truth for me. I have times during the year where obviously volume is really high and that is upwards of 30, 25 to 30 plus hours a week. Okay. I can't, I can't sustain that more than just a couple of weeks. Mm. And honestly, I don't want to sustain that. Yeah because then riding my bike doesn't feel as enjoyable to me. So working with my coach, Linda Wallenfels, we found that there's this balance for me personally of quality versus quantity. And then also a huge focus on nutrition and recovery and trying to get the best sleep I possibly can. So yeah, it's, I have, I mean, six hours is probably the longest ride that I'll do. Mm, Interesting. Um, I was actually getting ready for the Arizona trail 
early in the spring after a big 24-hour race Old Pueblo was canceled. And I actually did a nine-hour ride and a 10-hour ride. And the 10-hour ride now is the longest training ride I've ever done. Okay. And uh, that felt really, really long. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So when, when you get in, like when you've got your body dialed to a certain level, is it just a matter, uh, especially at the paces that you're going, because you're never going anaerobic, for instance, and I would assume you're, you're sort of low end of zone two for the vast majority of, of a race at that distance, I would guess? Yeah, yeah, there's, in the beginning, there's definitely surges. Okay. So you need to be ready for that, for sure, but it doesn't last for any extended right. period of time. And uh, you don't want to, right? Like you're playing the long game. You're not playing the short game. Okay. So my question then on that front is, you know, you have a certain level of strength and fitness to be able to compete. Like, what do you think the physical distance limitation is for you? Can you keep, is it just a matter of dialing the nutrition at that point and avoiding catastrophe? Like, could you ride a thousand miles, 2000 miles? If you ha you know what I mean? Like with sleep, obviously, but like, where does the limit happen once you're at like a baseline level of fitness, which I guess goes back to the original question of how long you have to train to do these things? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both a good base in fitness, right? So racking up tons of hours in a couple of years of long miles on the bike, it's just, you're going to build a big base fitness. And then the second thing is just efficiency on the bike and efficiency in how you consume and burn fuel. So are you a fat burner? Are you not a fat burner? And even though you're consuming a ton of sugar on the bike, if you're efficient in the fuel that you do burn, you can switch on and off from burning carbs and fats and rely on those two things. So when the intensity drops, you can start burning fat. When the intensity spikes for just a short, short minute or two, you can tap into that glycogen storage. So mm. I... I think it's all about just staying fueled. I mean, I bet you everyone out there will say there came a time or 10 that they just didn't want to eat. And it happened to me a ton. It always happens to me. But that right there, when you don't want to eat, is when you have to eat. Yeah. And so for me during Unbound this year, there would be a there was a couple of moments actually when the sun came up where I was like, shoot, I haven't eaten in 30 minutes. Mm. And the last thing I wanted to do was put any food in my mouth, but I would just almost force feed myself. So I was like, okay, you're you're putting down 300 to 400 calories right now, or else you're gonna be in a bad way. And you feel nauseous and you're shoving that food down your throat, but you get the payoff near almost instantly. So it's it's walking that fine line of fueling and being efficient. So have you found that like, uh, during those times, is there a go-to food for you? Do you try to avoid certain things? Is that a better time for a salty meat stick versus a sweet type of thing? Or, or just like, if you, if nothing sounds good, what do you opt for? Yeah, you're going to, there's going to be a time where nothing does sound good. Mm -hmm. And that's where liquid nutrition is good for me because it. you can almost force it force it down, you know, and yeah. it's that quick, it's that really, really quick hit. Mm -hmm. So I just try to bring a good variety of foods. So like the beef sticks, they're salty, they're savory, there's protein and fat in them. Got it. Um, and then for example, like the Oreos, you know, like you're kind of checking all your boxes there. Yeah. So at 23 hours, you started at 3 PM Friday, you said. 
Yep. yep. Okay. So you're finishing kind of right in the, like the middle of everybody else's racing, you know, you're right. So you, you do finish Saturday at 2 PM. Yeah, we merged, we, yeah, we merged in with the hundred mile racers. If I had to guess somewhere around like 40 to 50 miles to go for them. So, okay. We merged in with them and then the two hundreds were, I think the two hundreds finished right around four, five, four, four thirty, something like that. Okay. So when you're first, first finishers, when you're looking at these, like just the mental side of racing this far at, at what is it once, is it a hundred times during that race where you're second guessing yourself thinking like, God, why didn't I just do the hundred, you know, like, or is it? Oh yeah. Just, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't speak for other people, but for me, yeah, I question that at the start line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I hear you. Yeah. I like think I, it's funny. No, go ahead. Cause it's funny. Cause Mary, <clears throat> I tried to sleep in as late as I could on Friday, which why not? Right. So I yep. actually slept in until 10 AM on Friday. Okay. And Mary and my wife and I were joking cause I went down, ate breakfast and I came back up and we had till three. So just hang out and watch some YouTube on the computer or whatever it is. And she always asked me before these races, she's like, are you just trying to soak in the last couple hours of comfort <laughs> before you're incredibly uncomfortable? And I'm like, yes, that yeah. is the goal here. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I mean, there's no avoiding it. Right. So it's not like, uh, it's not like you can store comfort, you know? Yeah. It just, yep. it is what it is. And you're, you know, that you're about to, um, it, triathlon was always like that for me. There was never a swim that I had where I wasn't second guessing, like why the f- why are you doing this to yourself? Like, this is such <laughs> misery. But then, you know, as you're, as you get to that last, or right when you're finishing is when it starts to feel good. It seems like that's when you finally hit your stride and you're okay. Yeah. You know, you know, so I think we all have short-term memory to memories too, For sure. because everybody instantly after finishing, will say they'll never do it again. Then you ask them an hour later and they'll be contemplating it. And you ask them 12 hours later and they'll say, yeah, I'm going to set up next year. So. Yeah. I mean, we, we looked at, at athletes. We, we examined that a ton. We called it the reignition moment. And it was this, that second guessing, cursing yourself, et cetera. And then right when you cross that finish line is the best time to basically sign up for your next race because yeah. you, you, you just have so much one, you're filled with all these things like, Oh man, if I would, if I would have done this here or this there, I would have done better. You're, you know, you're, maybe you just proved to yourself that you can do something you didn't think you could do. There's so many things going in your mind right now that you just want to jump right back into that test. Yeah, exactly. And you're perfectly right. Because like I said, at the start of these races, I always question myself of like, you can't ride 300. And when you just look at when you hear 350 miles to me, it just sounds insane. Yeah. Like I think about driving from here to San Diego or to Las Vegas from our house. And I'm like, man, I, I wouldn't want to ride that on a bike, but you find yourself at the start of these events. So yeah, it's that, it's that mental, it's that mental battle. But like I said, we all have that short-term memory of you finish and inevitably you want to go do it again because you, you feel like you can improve in certain areas or change this part, this piece of equipment or change the way you train and whatever it is. Yeah. Um, my wife and I were talking about this the other morning, we were watching the, the ITU, um, mountain bike cross country championships on Red Bull. Right. And mm-hmm. there's, there's certain riders that you see that are like always kind of mid pack, you know, that just, they're never going to win a race, but they're, you know, and she was sort of questioning like, why, why are certain riders like, why do that? 
you know, if you're not winning, why do that? When you approach like the professional cycling side of things, you, you talked about, you know, going into unbound goal. Number one was to finish. How do you look at the world of, you know, to me, the answer was obvious. It was, you get to do this thing you love doing. It certainly beats a desk job. You've got sponsors and other, you know, things that are allowing you to travel the world and live this lifestyle, et cetera. How do you look at the world of pro cycling um, just from a pure, like there, there's no other job I think that we do. Like if you're a cashier, it's not like, well, if I can't be the best cashier, I'm not going to do it, you know, <laughs> but, but there's something about being a professional athlete that it's, it, you know what I mean? Like some people have that perception of, well, if you're not winning, you're losing versus, mm -hmm. well, I'm winning by being able to live this lifestyle. How do you look at like just being a professional athlete? Where does winning, winning come into play? Obviously it's important, but you know, things like, and we'll get into a little bit, uh, some of the mental health awareness things that you're working toward and that type of thing. So yeah. not to put words in your mouth, but how do you look at the whole world of professional cycling relative to you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I can't speak on behalf of like those, the cross country racers on Red Bull TV because they're at just this, this next level. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And even the guys and girls that are racing the 200 at unbound, like I look up to all those people just, just from the, the, the sheer speed that they're going and and how quickly they can cover that, that terrain. Um, but in the, in my realm of things, it's about showing up on the start line. And I don't think, I don't think people give themselves enough credit for just showing up and signing up because it takes a lot of courage to do that. Right. And I don't care if you come in 10 hours past the cutoff or you come in first place, if you cover the ground and you made it to the finish, you should be super, super proud of that because you, you have this story now that you can share with other people and you've done something that a lot of people may not have the opportunity to do or go out and see these places. Right. So it's more about like being thankful for, for having the opportunity that's presented to you. And maybe you can turn it into a, a result on paper, but that's so much more than that. And, um, I get it. Like there's a place for podiums in first, second, and third place. Like those things are important and I'm not knocking that at all. And yeah, they mean a lot to me. But recently I've, I've made this shift of like, there's so much more than that. It's, mm. it's about enjoying the experience, taking something positive away from it, and then seeing how that can improve your life moving forward. Um, I think in particular, these long events, I know for me that I'm able to gain a lot of things throughout the process of start to finish. You have these really, really highs, really high highs and these really low lows. Yeah. Right. And it's kind of it's figuring out how to work through those and problem solve while you're going and take lessons away from that and move forward. So it's, it's not really a straight answer to your question, yeah. but I think that there is, there is more to it, at least from my perspective and the, the way I'm approaching it. Um, I want to go to an event, regardless if I get first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or dead last, leave just as happy as if yeah. I were to win the event. And it's easier said than done, right? Like you always want to do better. I don't care if you come in first place, you want to go back and go faster. Sure. It's, 
that's why we do these things. But I want it to be a goal of mine to be be happy regardless of what place I come in. Yeah, no, and again, it makes sense. And it, you know, it's sort of like racing ultimately becomes the means to an end. And then it's just a question of what is your end? Is the end the podium? Is the end the message? Is the end the experience? Is it a combination of the three? Obviously, it's a combination of several things prioritized against, again, where your ego is, where you are in your career. You know, you may be sunsetting out where you're just happy, literally happy to finish a 350-mile race, you know, versus yeah. now where, you know, it's it's not a foregone conclusion, but all things being equal, you're going to finish, and then, you know, you're going to stand atop the podium. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's, there's lessons to be learned regardless of of the position you come in. But yeah, like I said, this was my, that was my goal was just simply to finish yeah. because there's a lot of time for things to go wrong out there. So in my book, I was like, shoot, you cross the finish line, regardless of your time. Like that's a win right there. Yeah, for sure. A- absolutely. How did you get it? I'm always fascinated. You know, I, I look around and I see people like you, I see, you know, I mean, just these, these athletes where, I mean, you know, the training is one thing, but you clearly have a gift inside of you, whether it's the mental plus physical or, or, you know, one side or the other. And I just, I always wonder, like I look into a crowd and I wonder how many four minute milers are in this crowd that have no idea they're a four minute miler. Like they just have no idea. They've never been pushed. They've never been put in the situation, those types of things. How did you end up, like, what was your athletic or specific to cycling's journey? I know you started pretty young and at what point do you start to realize like, was it more on the fitness side early on or the bike handling skills early on, or just the competitive fire? Like what was your journey like to, to realize that you had, you know, a victory at unbound XL in you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I've always dealt with like personal confidence issues. So even after winning unbound, I'm still like, well, that was a, and I know this sounds terrible, but like, oh, that was a fluke, right? I'm very self-deprecating and trying to work on that, but it's just the it's the reality, it's the truth about me. Um, but I got into to riding by my dad. He had always raced uh 24 hours of Moab on a team. Mm. That was his big thing each year. And growing up in the Awatuki area with South Mountain as our backyard here, in my opinion, I'm biased, but I think it has I think it's the best mountain biking in the country. I didn't get into riding. My dad tried to, to push it on me for the longest time. Mm. And he's like, Taylor, you're blowing an opportunity here. You have South Mountain in your backyard. You can pedal from the house and be on trails that are world-class. Yeah. And I just pushed against it, pushed against it, pushed against it until finally one day, um, I went on a ride with him and I was hooked ever since. And our neighbor gave us a hand-me-down, specialized mountain bike. And I beat the crap out of that every day after school. And I had a hand-me-down bike for my dad. And I realized like the downhill side of the sport was really appealing to me because my dad had transitioned into racing like masters downhill events. And so that's what I, that's what I did for the first few years. And I saved up for, my dad said, Hey, if you save up for a frame, a real downhill frame, I'll buy you the components. Mm. So I saved money for a year, nearly a whole year to buy a frame and finally got that frame. And he bought me the components, the fork, the wheels, everything. And I was just hooked, man. We were, we would travel the country doing the downhill races. And, um, at that time they would have downhill super D cross country and four cross 
all at these races. And I just loved riding my bike so much that I was fortunate enough I could race all four events in wow. a weekend. That's <laughs> so crazy. I was like, shoot, if we're traveling, like, why not get our money's worth here? Right. And yeah. one thing led to another and the endurance side of the sport was always very interesting to me mm-hmm. because uh, here on South mountain, you have to pedal wherever you want to go. Yeah. Right. Like I didn't have anybody to shuttle me after school. Um, I would just load up my backpack after school and go find new trails that I didn't know existed at the time. And then that transitioned, I started doing some endurance events, um, out of high school and I really, really loved it, but it wasn't this, I definitely wasn't natural at it. I didn't have this natural gift. I, I was dealing with some, at that time, some personal issues that were going on in my life and some really, really bad GI issues. I was seeing stomach specialists on a regular basis and I was getting operations on my pancreas and it was just this, this kind of crapshoot. And then I got into the enduro side of the sport. I focused on that for a couple of years and then was seeing more stomach specialists. And finally in 2015 is when I really started to figure out my stomach Mm. and some some mental, some mental things. And, uh, the focus has been on the endurance side since then. That's interesting. Soul focus. What, so <clears throat> was, was that always, well, I guess at the time was that your choice, but, but your physical and mental limitations were sort of keeping you on the, the enduro side of like, why once you licked those things, did, did endurance speak to you? Uh, I just loved the, aspect of like if you're gonna pay for an event i want to get the most <laughs> riding time for the money that's spent right and that's yeah. not to knock any other discipline of the sport like yeah. i endure i love the enduro racing especially the stage races like you could sign up and you could race two or three days stages each day i love that part of the sport yeah but i will admit i didn't have most natural ability in that side of the sport either. Yeah. I wasn't, I was getting smoked by people that just were bigger than me. Yeah. You know, like I didn't have that type of power out of corners and, um, I loved it. I always rode a, a trail bike for training. I mm. never really rode a cross country bike for training. I just always had a trail bike because it could pedal up, easy, pedal up pretty well and go downhill pretty dang quickly. So yeah. that was where that natural fit was. Got it. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, what was the, what, the stomach issues, the mental issues, again, mental health awareness is a big part of kind of who you are as a professional cyclist, as a, as a man, as a person these days, what were the, what were the issues? Like, how did they start to manifest themselves? How old were you when these challenges started to manifest themselves? So I noticed from a really young age, probably eight years old that I, I had something going on and at that age, I didn't really, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew something was different, yeah. right? I felt emotions very, very, very intensely, mm-hmm. more intensely than I, that seemed normal to me. Yeah. Um, I would be very down in the dumps almost for no reason at a very young age. And I didn't, I didn't know that that was different or anything right. at the time. And that progressed throughout my life into my early teens when I started to develop these really, really horrendous stomach issues. Mm. And not until I'm older now that I can kind of correlate the two, right? I can put them, put them together. One thing led to another, but yeah, I was 
it was disrupting my life in a major, major mm. way. My stomach issues were so bad that like, I don't mean to get graphic here, but I was, I would say for years, I was going to the bathroom on average 12 times a day. Wow. So it was this lifestyle that I eventually thought was normal. Like I yeah. just was like, oh, this is how my life is. And um, every day I would wake up with this fog, this major, major fatigue feeling. Mm. And I just thought that that was normal. Like I was in my teens now, like going to my twenties and I'm like, oh, maybe this is just how things work with your life. And um, I have been with my girlfriend, now wife, Mary, since high school. Okay. And she was pretty much the only person that I ever really let in on what was going on in my head. And she obviously knew about the stomach issues. I was having surgery on my pancreas, um, had two pretty major surgeries on the pancreas. But so she was there through all that. And I shared to her like, yeah, I've, I do suffer from pretty severe depression and anxiety. Um, that I really had never even opened up to my parents about. She was the only person Mm. and it was getting to the point of being pretty alarming. Um, so I would go see these doctors. I wasn't just seeing some specialists, but then I was seeing, uh, psychiatrists and counselors. And I just grew to be very, very distrustful. Not, I wouldn't trust anybody. I didn't trust doctors. I just felt like they were putting a bandaid on things and not trying to fix it. So yeah, it led down this really unhealthy path of like stopping medication, cold Turkey for depression. And everybody knows those effects are horrible. And so I was never doing myself a favor. I was always kind of almost harming myself in a way. And uh, now that I'm older, I I really realized that those stomach issues were caused by by health issues for sure. But in my opinion, the majority of the stomach issues were because I was hiding my anxiety and depression from everybody other than Mary for the longest time. Did it did it isolate you from friends? Like, were you kind of my my uh, intuition would say that you sort of turned to to biking, which is more of a solo sport because one, you're going to the bathroom a dozen times a day, as you said, you've got all these crazy feelings. Your buddies want to go play. You're the kid now who constantly is saying, I don't feel like playing or whatever. Like, did it isolate you from, from having what you would consider kind of a normal group of friends and things growing up? Uh, yes and no. I have had a really, really close group of friends since some of us have known each other since kindergarten. And I feel very lucky for that. Uh, so no, in the sense that my, f- the group of friends that I do have, while it's relatively small, we are very, very, very close. Got it. But at the same time, I didn't let anybody in on what was going on. Yeah, I was going to say that's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I really haven't let anybody in until pretty recently Okay. on, on what has been going on in my life. Uh, I had some pretty scary moments back in September where I finally had to speak up to mm-hmm. my wife because it was, I... Th- I think there would be a different story had I not spoken up. Wow. And I feel very lucky that I did speak up and I had support from her, but she provided support in a really calm, cool and collected way. Okay. Alarm bells didn't go off in her head. Right. She approached it in this way of from like a very caring and loving standpoint. Whereas I'm sure that if maybe I told other people of what was going on in my head, alarm bells would have gone off right, right. away. Yeah. And it's understandable. Sure. It's very understandable. You don't hear these things that I told her every day. Yeah. And they're terrifying. They're very terrifying. But that I'm very, very grateful to that she stepped in when she did. Yeah. Was it um 
a couple questions here on that. So was this sort of isolation from COVID related, do you think, or was it professional no. things going on? Was it like the, just the pressure mounting of being a professional athlete, chemical? It's definitely a chemical imbalance because I had been treated for depression since a young age yeah. and been put on medication. The COVID thing, and I feel bad saying this, right, because it affected millions of people in, in a negative way. People died from it. People lost jobs. My wife and I were very fortunate that we didn't have any real negative impacts for our life. In yeah. fact, it we we spend a lot of time just home with us two and our dogs, so it really didn't change anything for us. So it wasn't COVID. It wasn't pressure from the bike or because of no... I mean, pressure from the bike that I put on myself had an impact mm -hmm. over years and years and years. But I found myself starting to kind of not go to as many gatherings with friends and staying in bed longer and some days staying in bed all day and just not leaving the house for days on end and hiding what was going on in my head for so long other than to marry and even hiding stuff from Mary up yeah. to a certain point was exhausting. What? It was absolutely exhausting. So some of that you can, you can hide from Mary and others because again, you're a pro cyclist. You could chalk it up to just a really heavy day in the saddle the day before, whatever. I'm just tired, you know, <laughs> let me just recover. What, um, and feel free to share as much or as little of this as you want, but when, like, what is, what are you experiencing in your mind at that point in the interest of awareness? Like, is it, um, is it just negative thoughts? Is it literal voices? Is it just a total malaise? Like for, for those who haven't experienced this level of kind of anxiety and depression, what is, what does it feel like to you? So I had, and I had always had this incredible sense of hopelessness, mm. regardless of how good things were going in my life like just this uncomprehensible sense of weight and hopelessness mm -hmm. and anxiety that started affecting my sleep in this horrible way. Whereas I would go to bed in my mind, I just, it was like this hamster wheel that you could not stop it from turning. So the combination of those two things was just horrible. And that hopelessness just became like my my brain was basically looking for an out at that point. Oh. And it, I wasn't consciously thinking about that. And that's when the alarm bells really went off Got it. of, okay, I am not consciously having these thoughts. They're just happening. Yeah. That was extremely concerning, especially with how detailed they were. Hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the hopelessness for me was the worst part. Like it was just, it, it never seemed to end regardless of these, of incredible yeah. highs. Like you'd be on a high for, a short time. And then when you would come down, it was this, it was this major come down. And so, you know, I mean, we've had, I think everybody's experienced, you lose a job, you break up with, you know, a boyfriend, a girlfriend or whatever. Like there's a reason for the hopelessness that you can point mm -hmm. to that you can maybe take some comfort of like, Oh, maybe I'll feel better tomorrow. I'll be a little bit more over, you know, this, this, you know, this woman or this job or whatever it is, but there's sure. a, a tethering of an experience or, or something. Is it, um, it seems like there is no, 
thing. There's like a ghost that you have this hopelessness around that you can't, you can't pin it on anything. There's no reason for the hopelessness. Maybe you just want a bike race. Maybe your professional career is going great and you and Mary are doing fantastic and your dog is happy and all of these things that should be going great, but you just still have this. Is that part of it is just that you can't freaking pin this thing on anything. Yeah. I like when I, for example, like in 2009 was a really rough year. Um, my mom was diagnosed with cancer for the second time. My parents divorced and our house burned down like that. I was dealing with all this stuff and that amplified it. But since then I haven't really had like this, I haven't had a traumatic, I haven't had anything traumatic happen in my life. So that was driving me crazy too. was like trying to pinpoint why is this happening? And I, at times I felt like I was driving myself crazy. Mm. Like you, you have, you don't have a reason. You're not, you're not starving. You have a roof over your head. And I felt guilty. And I think that was one reason why I didn't share this with other people was I wasn't necessarily afraid of people looking at me and going like, well, what do you have to complain about? It was more about not wanting to, to bring my problems and make them other people's problems. Mm. Right. Like, cause I know how busy people are in their daily lives. Like it's the hustle and bustle. I didn't want to be that person that was like, Hey, I need someone to talk to. I need some help. And in hindsight, I wish I would have done that way long ago. Yeah. Like my mom and I talked about this even recently. She was like, I wish you would have told me this when you were eight. And I just didn't. And yeah. things could have been different for sure. And that's, I think that's why I'm so passionate about this now is because I know there's so many people out there that have similar or the same feelings yeah, and either don't have a support system that they feel like they can trust or just are bottling it up because they had the same feelings that I did of not wanting to make it other people's problem. And if I learned one thing, it's, I would have definitely changed that. And you do have to find somebody you can trust. Absolutely. And it's yeah. the most terrifying thing to let people in on exactly what's going on. Cause like I said, if it's not the right person, alarm bells can go off. So from Mary's perspective, what is the right way? Obviously you trusted Mary, your wife, your, you know, your longtime girlfriend. Did you guys go to Red Mountain or, or is it Desert Vista back there? Is that the other? Yeah, Desert Vista. Desert Vista. Okay. Um, what is the, like, what is the right way? And I know everybody's going to be different in this for her, for you specifically. What did Mary do that ended up being the right thing? You know, is it, well, you just answer that question, I suppose. She did a lot of things and she obviously knows me better than anybody else. Um, I have anxiety around medication. So, and I think that comes from growing up and seeing so many stomach specialists and being prescribed tons of medication <clears throat> at a relatively young age. And the same thing with psychiatrists at a young age of them prescribing me these pills for depression and anxiety. And so I, I learned to really, really fight back against doctors mm-hmm. in my teens, which led to some pretty heated arguments in doctor's offices of that would spill out of the office and me, me rebelling against everything they said, because I was so against basically putting a, what I thought was a bandaid on things yeah. and not really figuring out the issue. So the one thing that she did was like, Hey, we're not going to go get you on medication right away. Like, let's try things. Let's try, um, 
going to see a psychiatrist and figure and going to see multiple, right. Getting multiple opinions about what's going on. And then one thing that she really understands is you can't lose sight of like moving your body because for me, exercise is like a form of meditation. So getting out on the bike and I've since learned from seeing my therapist on a regular basis, like bilateral stimulation is huge for me. So what do we do on our bike? Our legs are going up and down. Like that for me is incredibly stimulating and can relieve stress in a major, major way. Mm. And then when the time was right, her saying like, Hey, if you want to get on medication, you can don't feel like you have to though. Just because people are saying like, Hey, you should get on this medication, that medication. Yeah. Don't like you can, you can do what you want to do. Nobody's forcing you to do anything. And so that calm approach really felt comfortable to me. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, in the, in, certainly in the United States and uh, talk to anybody who comes to the United States from another country, they are astounded at the number of pharmaceutical commercials that are on during a normal hour's worth of television. And, you know, there's a lot of people who look at that and say, you know, if my doctor isn't prescribing medicine, they're not doing their job, right? Where you, Mm -hmm. you sort of have that opposite effect and direction where it's like, no, no, there's, you know, again, whether it's diet, therapy, different things, like how do we do this first? Because the reality is, you know, a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, these things didn't exist. And that wasn't, so there's nothing that indicates that this is an absolutely hopeless position without a drug. We just have to reattune ourselves to that practice of saying, okay, how do we solve this in a more natural way? Not to say that drugs are bad. And I'm sure, you know, there are people listening who are in the mental health profession who would espouse a lot of the great things about certain uh, yeah. medications and things, but. And I am on medication now. Like it's, yeah. it has made my life better in the past few months. Um, but there are side effects with it. Yeah. Right. Like any medication, like I do feel more lethargic, especially in the mornings. Like it, it takes a while for that engine to get going in terms yeah. of like waking up and feeling super alert. Yeah. But for me, the payoff is there in the sense of like, like I said, I think that there would have been a different story, at least from back in September where things were. It's September of 2020, even March of, of this year. Yeah. Things were in a really, really bad place. I just told her, like, if we don't get this fixed now, A, I'm not willing to see old age. Yeah. Like, I'm not I'm not willing to live through these anymore. Yeah. Um, and I just want answers. I felt like a black sheep every time I would go to a doctor. Mm. So that's, yeah. So you you're having these very, very vivid thoughts, which I assume are around how to not have thoughts at all anymore. Um, yeah. How, so you've reached out to Mary now, but you've got to feel like at some, like at some level, you're literally sitting on a ticking time bomb. Um, you know, there's no, you know, you hear Chester Bennington and or Benningfield or whatever his name uh, from uh, Lincoln Park, Chris Cornell. I mean, so many very Anthony Bourdain, all of these really high profile suicides. Um, those by all accounts are not things that were long planned. Their loved ones are always coming out and saying, I, you know, I talked to him three hours before this, like he was fine kind of thing. So like you've got to have this massive and and Mary, especially has got to have this massive amount of fear around like, again, we're sitting on this ticking time bomb. How do we diffuse it before it goes off? How do you deal with that? How do like uh, part of this is understanding from your perspective how you deal with it, and then maybe on the other side is kind of giving advice to people who are listening 
who maybe know somebody who's been, you know, going through these types of things, like what is the best way? Because the last thing you want to do is put your fear on the person going through this to then yeah. add more to the anxiety and that type of thing. It's really hard, right? Because it, it requires you to open up about things that are not comfortable to talk about. Yeah. They're really not comfortable to talk about. And it brings everybody's at a heightened sense of alertness, right? Like it's very serious stuff to talk about. Um, I, I can only speak for me, but the answer for me was just that to talk about it yeah. and to talk to Mary about it. And she was very fortunate in her job that she could actually stay home from work for periods of time, which I was very thankful for mm -hmm. because I would have my anxiety would spike dramatically every morning when she would leave for work and I'd be home alone. I hated that. So it was like this, I would count the minutes until she got home. And when she was home, I felt a little bit more secure and yeah. safe. But when she was gone, it was like my brain would go into this way of like, you can't continue this. What's an out? And wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was incredibly uncomfortable and alarming and um, terribly scary because there came a point where like I wasn't consciously thinking about that. It was just this sense of like, I've lived with this for so long what's a remedy and what's a permanent remedy. And that is where, unfortunately, my brain was going. So to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like, this idea that, you know, you're, uh, you're this accomplished adult, you know, otherwise like everything is going well in your life and you literally are having these um, very realistic um, questions of like, can I make it through the day without doing something really yep. terrible? And, um, yeah, that's a really, I just can't, you know, from that perspective, you know, I think the mental health certainly deserves the awareness that hopefully it's starting to get, but, um, I, I just don't think I don't think people can understand. Did you happen to see uh, Gary Goldman's The Great Depression? No. It's a really good comedy special. I think maybe it was on HBO about a year ago. And he goes really super raw and just talks about his, like exactly what you're describing 100% to a T. Um, you know, and, and at one point he kind of makes this joke about like some of the side effects of the medications that he was on is like, you know, erectile dysfunction or your lack of sex drive and things. And he's like, oh yeah, like it's going to really cut into time the all the sex that I was having <laughs> laying in bed weeping all day, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's a small price to pay, you know, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And that was eye-opening because, yeah, it's like, I think, I, I just don't think unless you're going through it, you really have the, um, the perspective of what this level of depression and anxiety and, you know, the again, voices or feelings or whatever, but just to put that into perspective of this, again, picturing you sort of like as your wife leaves for the day, wondering, do I have the wherewithal to make it through the day? Yeah. And, uh, the same thing at night when she would fall asleep before me, it was just like, ah, like weather this storm here. Wow. Um, and at, when I, we call them these episodes that I, that I slip into, um, 
and really they've intensified since 2016. Uh, and when I'm in these episodes, they usually last upwards of a month where oh. it's this a really heightened sense of anxiety, like panic episodes on a regular basis. And everything seems incredibly overwhelming and daunting, even so much so that like, it's embarrassing to say, but like making a bed in the morning seems like the most overwhelming task that I can possibly think of, let alone like making breakfast. So you throw in like training on a bike that's just out. There's just no way I, I can't. I can't comprehend making a bed, let alone like throw my leg over a bike. And so that's when I kind of have that feeling of like, well, the bike is usually my outlet and it's healthy outlet of meditation, but I I can't really do that right now. It's like, what else am I going to do? Yeah. So then I, I recently started doing kind of yoga in the house and that I noticed that that helped me a lot too. It was a way to kind of keep my mind busy moving while I'm not good at it at all. (laughs) I'm embarrassingly horrible at it. Yeah. But it was like, okay, once I brought it up, especially back in March, it's like, I want to figure this thing out. It's a battle every day. There's, there's these struggles. And then, yeah, it's trying to figure out an answer to things rather than putting a bandaid on them. Yeah. Right. And on those days that you don't feel like you can do it, do you feel like if if somebody could snap their fingers and put you on the bike and get you a mile away from the house, like would it help, do you think, or would you just turn right around and go back home? Uh, Is it the starting or the doing? It's everything. When I'm in those episodes, it's everything. Yeah, yeah. like it feels overwhelming to put like to put your kid on, honestly. Mm, wow. And like, I'm very, very in this, I'm very confused when I go through those episodes. Mm. So I get really easily confused by just watching TV. So like when I mix bottles of like infinite before my ride, I get very thrown off. Like, did I put, I don't know what bottle has the mix in it. And it's, it sounds totally crazy. And I know, but that, those are just the side effects that I get when I go through these things. Yeah. The brain fog is, (laughs) my wife and I have gotten to hate that word because that's one of the main focuses when I'm going through them is the brain fog is incredibly intense. Yeah. It almost feels like your equilibrium is off. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I, I, um, this is a, I don't even know if I should relate the two, but I will just because, you know, for me, it really illustrated the importance of, um, food and, and how chemical, certainly chemicals react in your body is I, I quit sugar years ago. I was having this, like, I, I thought I had, um, torn a rotator cuff and it turned out it was, it was a combination. I was eating hot tamales every day. I was eating a box of hot tamales every single day and I'd never put wow. the two together. And so there was probably a little bit of an injury in there, but the red dye and the sugar and whatever other chemicals were in there. Sure. I sort of, I don't know, again, intuited like, Oh no, it was actually Lent. I gave up sugar for Lent. And so a week in, all of a sudden, that shoulder pain, which I'd been dealing with for like a year, and wow. it was almost to the point of surgery. And uh, I quit. Whoa. I cut it out. And uh, within a week, all the pain was gone. And I also noticed that my vision improved. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and the brain fog. Like I was getting these, these like a couple hours after lunch, which is primarily when I would eat these things. Like I would just, I wouldn't, it wasn't like a food coma kind of thing, but I definitely noticed this cognitive decline for a couple of really? hours after I would eat. And it was just like, kind of as you're describing it, but if mine was a one and yours is a 10, it was just, you know, I'm trying to write software and it was just like, oh my God, this is this 
like what's going on? This is the simplest yeah. problem. Like this is an algorithm I've written a hundred times. Why can't I put this together? Um, so yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's very, very real, just the interaction of food. And then once you start introducing, whether it's alcohol or candies and, you know, like really foreign types of substances, the number of chemicals that are in foods these days, they can sure. have real effects for sure. Yeah. You, well, you just look at like the inflammation that foods can cause. It's, it's, it's pretty scary actually. So that's one thing that I have tried to do especially during those episodes is eliminate as many foods that create this inflammatory response yeah similar to your shoulder thing right like when you eliminated something that creates that response things start to improve it's crazy it's crazy yeah i wish more people and i wish you know our, our sort of our health system and food systems and all of these things would would focus more on the on the realities of all of that yeah but you know certainly you certainly don't get the opportunity during something like Unbound to focus on foods that are. <laughs> no, and that, you know, that is crazy. My my wife is so against all of this. I was actually supposed to be doing a 50-mile ultra this weekend up in in um, in, in uh, Leadville, and my foot never cooperated. So those people listening right now, it's been uh, an interesting journey with my foot. Uh, <laughs> I will do it next year. It is getting better, but I just, I probably could have finished, but I, I just knew, like, it's not the right time. I need another year of just, you know, longer miles on my feet. Um, but that's one of the problems is, is that you, I know that inflammation is part of what's going on. And so, but then I also know that I need certain types of nutrition, especially now in Colorado, all summer long, it's going to be hot as shit. And so, you know, finding the right things that don't have those inflammatory responses in my body that then can also hydrate me, you know, so it's, yeah, it's a never ending battle. Yeah. You start walking this fine line. It's like, man, I wish I didn't know the things that I know because now (laughs) ignorance is bliss for sure. You know, (laughs) I I mean, it's, yeah, it, it is tough because now I do know, now I'm so hyper aware and we got our kids in tune with this is like, my son is now like, he has the cleanest freaking diet on the planet. That's he, awesome. He just started to, you know, my wife is a nutritionist. So, you know, she would start to like pay attention to your body. And so he's very attuned to it. Um, That's very cool. Yeah. And cleaning up his diet. I mean, he had like massive gains in um, track and field this year. Like he went from a 530 down to a 440 mile in, in less than a year. Holy cow. Yeah. Just, I mean, he's been training like a madman, but his diet has been, I think, a huge contributor cutting out things that he was intolerant to. So yeah. sure, sure. Crazy. That speaks volumes for it. Yeah. Plus what he's just now, I can't even run with the guy anymore. He's uh, it's like <laughs> yeah, about a year ago. It's just like, Oh, this isn't fun. I'm not running with you anymore. <laughs> Dick. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's a good fit. It's a good problem to have. I'm, I'm super happy about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk real quick about, uh, I know that it got postponed because of uh, a bike accident that you had, but this AZT 300, the Arizona trail 300 kind of a, um, how does this differ from, uh, I mean, ostensibly a shorter race at, at uh, Unbound, but a tougher course. Um, yes. Describe AZT 300, and then I've got some specific questions around your bike setup and things that I had questions about. Yeah. Um, so the AZT 300 was the focus early in the spring, February into March, because we had 24 hours in the old Pueblo was canceled, which is always my favorite event of the year, which was a huge target as early as the fall of last year. So that's what I've been training for and got the news that it was unfortunately canceled. So I'm like, well, I got to find something, right? Like 
I've been working hard. A natural fit was the Arizona Trail 300. It's local. It's the start is relic- relatively close to home. Um, we had had a really dry winter, so I went up and scouted stuff over Mount Lemon, and it was pretty much bone dry in mm. in February. And we had a warm winter too, so I had thought, okay, let's let's nail this for end of February, and then we had snow roll in, mm. unfortunately. So I pushed it back to the end of March. Um, and then snow had all melted off. It was good to go. And shortly before, I think it was a week and a half before the start, two weeks before the start, uh, actually I fell into one of those brain fog kind of bad mental spaces. And then just a couple days after that is I had this pretty horrendous crash on a mountain bike. Mm. So I'm like, oh man, there goes the AZT because obviously I needed to recover, had some surgery, spent a night in the hospital. Wow. How'd the crash um, happen? What happened? I have no idea. I was, I don't even remember dropping into the trail. Wow. Uh, I woke up with the bike on top of me and hikers coming up on me. And I had, I was like, oh man, like obviously I went down cause the bike's on top of me. And, uh, I got really lucky because I thought that I had broken the femur, the scapula, and for oh. sure my collarbone Damn. and we went to the hospital and they x-rayed actually my ankle, the femur, my scapula, my arm and my clavicle. And by the looks of it, it looked like my scapula actually caved into my back. Man. And I was very fortunate to only break my clavicle. So, um, and get a pretty severe concussion, which didn't do me any favors from, for the mental yeah, side that, of things. Where was this? Uh, it was actually just on goat off of DC. Huh. I've ridden that trail a thousand times and it was where I woke up was probably the smoothest section of trail. Bizarre. <laughs> wow. So I don't, I don't know what happened. Um, the only thing that made it a little confusing was I already had a plate in the collarbone and it broke right near the AC joint uh, at the plate. So it was just kind of difficult to remove that, replace all the hardware. So I knew AZT was done because <clears throat> obviously summer is way too hot here you likely die out there probably doing the route so but that's a big focus of mine because it's the terrain that i love to ride it's super primitive trail um and it's one of those things where it's just this challenge of point a to point b yeah right like you start at parker canyon lake just north of the border of mexico and then you end at picket post off the 60 just east of phoenix and i've ridden basically i've ridden all the sections uh and i just i love the trail so mm. so much and it's once again this this game of logistics yeah right it's this game of how can i prepare my gear my body and my head of like trying to go just a little bit quicker and being efficient with my fueling and finding water sources or filtering water if I need to. I love everything about that. I love all of those, those little fine details. So right now the plan is to try that in the fall. So long as our fire season holds off because sadly picket post was, has basically all burned. Oh no. Just the past couple of days. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Which is one of the, Actually, not one of. It is the most beautiful section of trail I've ever ridden in my entire life. Mm. Up from the Gila River to Picket Post, where the I, where the sixty is. Yep. Um, yeah, basically have a. I think it's up to two hundred thousand acres right now. Two fires merged, wow. and it basically totaled the area, which is 
horrible. But um, so hopefully come fall, we will line up for the grand depart date and give the AZT a shot. But it's, you're right. It's totally different from unbound in the sense that it's actually shorter in distance, but if all goes well, uh, 18 plus hours longer. Wow. So your average speed is, is way, way lower because there's a, there's plenty of hike bike on the trail Yeah, and it's fully self-supported obviously. And it's just that raw primitive desert single track. Like you just go nowhere fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think and, I read you were at, you were planning on about an eight mile per hour average. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's fast. That's best case. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm used to, you're used to 24 hours in the old Pueblo, which as a 24 hour solo rider, you can rack up 300 plus r- miles pretty commonly out yeah. there um that's mostly single track so it's mm-hmm. a, that single track's obviously quicker moving and then yeah. unbound you do 350 miles in just under 23 hours like it's a it's a major shift and but that's what i really love to ride the most yeah. is my mountain bike on rugged single track i think it comes from that enduro background yeah i just that's what i truly enjoy riding so that that was interesting because you're riding the Pivot Mach Four SL, which is ostensibly a cross country bike. What was like? What was your decision in you know not doing something like a trail bike, a little bit slacker geometry and and thing you know? Because you're gonna you're calorie wise, like what's another pound or two in a, you know in, in the bike weight type of thing? Mm-hmm. But what what decisions went into a cross country? So that particular frame the pivot mock 4sl i just have so much time on it mm. um i run all my cross-country bikes with dropper posts so for me i'm very comfortable descending on that bike i have a trail bike as yeah. well uh but you do have to think of a little bit of efficiency at that point right so a bike that you can i want a bike that can fully lock out so when you're pedaling when you hop out on the road on mount lemon you do have some time on the pavement that you're climbing up to eight thousand plus feet so i want to be as efficient as possible but that bike for that particular event like i did make changes to it so i was i decided on stands flow wheels so basically a downhill rim so you get a much wider rim profile it equates to a larger footprint of a tire yeah so also running shimano xt four piston brakes okay so with the bike being loaded down you have more weight moving forward like slow the bike down quicker so changes like that i made and that's the plan is to run that setup got it do you just do you run that fox 32 float just uh straight do you have um spacers in there or, or like what's your suspension set up on that yeah i run the 100 mil 32 step cast on the front and i run three volume reducers in the okay. fork i like the suspension on my mountain bikes to ramp up pretty hard okay um and then i run pressure usually 10 to 15 psi above my my weight uh it feels more efficient to me and mm. i can stay on top of the bike rather than in the bike, you know? Okay. And that's just how I've always ridden my stuff. Okay. How big a guy are you? I can't really get a sense for on video. Uh, 5'10 and anywhere between 140, 145 pounds. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. So how do you, uh, so you, how often are you coming? Is the AZT 
totally remote? Are you going through towns? No, you go through towns okay. for sure. They, although they they are they have are making a change to the route specifically on the southernmost part before you get to Sonoida. So the first town you would get to in the past was uh, Patagonia, and then you hop on a paved section there and pedal into Sonoida. Okay. Now they're actually removing those two town sections where mm-hmm. you're going to be basically on single track qu- remote until you get to Southern Tucson, Southeastern wow. Tucson mm-hmm. before you turn up Redding. T- I'm this, I'm assuming that everybody knows <laughs> where these towns are. Right. But, yeah. uh, you come into Tucson on the Eastern edge and then you leave Tucson on the Eastern edge up, up Reddington pass road. I'm sure plenty of people have heard of that. And you hop on the, the Mount Lemon road, which I'm Got sure it. people know about. If so, I, if I send you a sun devil kit, will you wear it through Tucson? <laughs> I wouldn't make, I wouldn't make it out of, uh, Eastern Tucson at that point. You wouldn't. <laughs> so th- it is presenting, it's presenting more challenges because the, they're always changing the course, right? They're always adapting the AZT to make it more remote. And my plans that were going to happen back in February or March need to shift for October. So I need to plan accordingly to not have a resupply basically until Tucson. Yeah. Yeah. So, and October but that's the fun is, in it. Yeah. October is a little bit different weather too than, than, uh, then February, you know, I mean, just from yeah. a, you never know what you're going to get in October in Phoenix. I, I remember like my kids one time for Halloween, uh, they ended up just in their masks. So my son was Darth Vader. He had a Darth Vader mask on and he was wearing shorts and a t-shirt cause it was so freaking hot on <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> it yeah. Miserable. It can be a hundred degrees on Halloween Easily. or it can be pretty, we've had chilly Halloween. Here. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be, it could be low sixties or it could be 106. You just never know. Yeah. So I'm excited for, for that. I'm just crossing my fingers that our fire season, we actually, I'm crossing our fingers first of all, that we actually have a monsoon season this year. Yeah. Because last year, I'm sure like much of the Southwest, we just had, we literally had no monsoon season. I think it was the driest record in, in, in history here. Crazy. Yeah. It's been nice and wet up here in Colorado. We just had a four or five days of good heat, but then we got back to rain. So it's, it's, but we've had a wetter spring for sure. It's been super green up here. It's been crazy. So we're we're trying to send as much water down to you guys as possible. Yeah. Well, hopefully that wet spring doesn't lead to a dry summer for you guys. Cause that's, that's when it gets scary. Yeah. That happens too. Yeah. Last year it was, there were so many times where I, I could not ride or could not run outside because it was just so smoky. I mean, especially, I mean, yeah, literally the front range above Boulder chemo we mentioned earlier, like his house at one point was in danger. And he, I mean, he lives in North Boulder, like just the town of Boulder. And and there were fires literally hundreds of feet from his house. It was crazy. Terrifying. Yeah. It was really scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got, uh, we normally do a little 10 question dash. You want to answer some questions and uh, let people get to know you a little bit. All right, here we go. Let's get our, our question theme music cranked up here. Um, okay. So we've mentioned pivot a couple of times. What is your name, some sponsors and what's your gear looking like? Yeah. Uh, pivot cycles, uh, stands, no tubes, infinite Shimano Maxis. Those guys are a big help. Um, Velocio for apparel, everything like that is I could, I could name a a bunch that have helped me along the way. That's awesome. Keep, keep the support coming to the athletes. They need it. Yeah. Um, what's your, so is the AZT, is that your next race or are you signed up for anything in between? 
No, we just started playing the schedule. I had no plans up until Unbound because I was going through a lot of stuff physically, mentally. And I'll be doing BWR, Belgian Waffle Ride, in San Diego in okay. July. And then in August, our plan is to go to Rooted Vermont. Mm. And then Gravel Worlds has a 300-mile category now in Nebraska. So I signed up for the 300-mile gravel race there. Nice. And then some stuff later into the summer and then mountain biking into the fall. Have you done um, Unpaved in Pennsylvania? I have not. No? Okay. I have not. Yeah. That's come up a few times on the podcast. Uh, that's a good race that uh, I'm tentatively looking for going out there and staying out at the Rodale Institute, the organic, the home of organic farming. So, Oh, sweet. Yeah. Um, what's your, do you have a favorite sports book or movie or anything not, like that? Not really. Uh, I would say my interest outside of cycling or like weather. I'm kind of a obsessed about tornadoes, no hurricanes, kidding. natural disaster. Yeah, that's that's my big thing. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, you a Twister fan? Yeah, I, my wife makes fun of me because I watch old reruns on YouTube of old weather broadcasts. No kidding. Yeah, it's like it's my biggest interest outside of cycling. No kidding. All right. Well, that's yeah. interesting. Interesting. What's the what's your favorite race that you've done? That you've done? Oh, Pueblo. Old Pueblo and Unbound, probably. Yeah. Okay. Old Pueblo has a special place. Yeah. In my heart, for sure. It's local, right? Yeah. Well, local if you consider Tucson local to Phoenix, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm just a lifelong Sun Devil. I you know I have to I have to give Tucson hell anytime <laughs> yeah. I can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's your bucket list race? What's that one out there that you haven't been haven't been able to do yet? Oh, uh, I would love to do BC Bike Race. BC. Yeah, BC Bike Race, the the mountain bike stage race up there. Okay, nice. That that's something that really is appealing to me. Very nice. Yeah, BC. Got it. Anytime I see like the cycle, the mountain biking documentaries and. BC is just like, ah, that, that cannot, cannot exist. I know. Right. Yeah. It just looks so amazing. It's funny to watch that. There's a great, I don't remember what the name of it is, but it kind of talked about the origins of mountain biking. And so it was Santa Cruz and like the sand dune, you know, just, just gnarly desert yeah. track. <laughs> and then the guys in Whistler and stuff. It's like, yeah, man, that's crazy that the same sport grew up in two very, very different places like that. Polar opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Uh, where am I at here? Do you have a home stretch song or band on your playlist? Do you listen to music when you ride? I listen to everything. Uh, I love all types of music except like R and B. Okay. I'm with <laughs> uh, you. Yeah. I will listen to everything from metal to country, to rap, to underground rap, anything and everything I'm a fan of. Nice. Very good. What's uh, what's the most embarrassing song on or artist on that playlist? Oh, my wife has a bunch of stuff saved on my Spotify account, <laughs> and I'm like, man, if people look at my Spotify account, they're gonna be like, he actually listens to yeah. this. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, whatever she has saved on there. But honestly, I'll listen to I'll yeah. listen to pretty much anything. That's good. Yeah, I've got my do- I've come across songs on my thing that are from my daughter's playlist on Apple Music, and it's uh, a lot of yep. One Direction, Harry Styles. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What, uh, do you have any pre-race rituals or superstitions that you go through? Uh, not necessarily. I, I just like to keep things familiar in the sense of like what I eat before, because I know it works for my stomach and why stray away from that. But no, 
Okay. I wouldn't say superstitions. Good for you. Living or dead, who would you most like to share a long ride with? Oh. They, they, do they have to be a cyclist? Nope, not at all. Mm. Could be a famous meteorologist. Man, I never thought about that one. Mm. I would have to say... I don't know, probably like FDR, because I'm also really, really into history. Very nice. Well, yeah, that would probably the, be it. All right, you're the first person to list FDR. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Taylor, the last question, final question here. What is the secret? Just that there's no secret. Bam. It's just, uh, yeah, just enjoy riding your bike. And if, you, if you're having fun, that's the most important thing. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, where can people find you, follow you, and 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 track your uh, track your progress? I'm uh, most active on Instagram. Okay. Uh, at T Ledine, T L I D E E N. Cool. Uh, shoot me a message on there. Also, recently, I just want to tell people like if you are struggling and going through a dark time, um, and you feel like you don't have anybody that you can trust to reach out to, feel free to reach out to me over social media, send me a message. I know it can be really, really scary to do that and intimidating, but even if you just want to shoot me a message because you want to get something out on text or paper, I'll be there just to listen if that's what you want, um, even for strangers. So yeah, that's, that's one big thing. Um, you can find me on, on Instagram. That's, that's probably the easiest way. Well, thanks for doing that. That's, that's awesome. Uh, that, that's the invitation, uh, to all of you folks out there. So definitely if you're having those thoughts and feelings, take him up or, or, you know, if not with Taylor, with somebody else close to you. So yes, that's awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough, man, for coming on. It's been really fun chatting with you. I'm glad, uh, Melly hooked us up and, uh, can't wait to talk to you again after, after the AZT completion. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I want to thank you for all the time. Indeed. Have a great day, and uh, we'll talk soon. Will do. Thank you. All right, man. Thank you. And that is the show. Hope you enjoyed it. More people racing, more often having more fun in the process is our mission. Thanks again so much to Taylor Ledeen for sharing his story. You can find him on Instagram at tledeen, T-L-I-D-E-E-N. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We do a special post for each episode on Instagram. So look for the post for episode 45 with a picture of Taylor. If you have comments or questions, we are at Athlinks. I am at Troy Bousseau. That's B-U-S-O-T on the last name. Or shoot us an email to podcast at athlinks.com. Share it with friends far and wide. Give us a review if you dig it. And until next time, happy racing, everybody. <laughs>